0: All right, welcome to the Marathon Running Podcast. Um, we're just going to jump in here. I've got John Davis on the line with me. Uh, John, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I want to have you introduce yourself and give your own background here live because I didn't record a an intro or anything. But before I do that, let me just give a little context to how this conversation came about. Um, So my last episode was with Nate Jenkins and we talked a lot about the Renato Canova program and philosophy of training. And I kind of wanted to continue getting to the bottom of this, of this idea. Um, A lot of the principles that come up in Renato Canova style training so after that episode, after that conversation, I was online reading stuff and an article of yours came up and we can get into the details of some of those articles you've written later on. But, um, an article came up that you had written where actually a couple, one was where you kind of give a, an overview of Canova methods. I think that might have been the title of it. Like, uh, something new in training. Exactly, something new in training, Renato Canova methods, something like that. Yeah, it was kind of like an overview of his principles broadly, and then there's a, another one where you detail two of a specific athlete's marathons buildups. Um, one of them is Moses. Uh, I'm sorry, Moses Mosop, and uh, for one of his Boston Marathon buildups, and you translate all his um, workouts into relative paces, like as a in terms of percentage of marathon pace and things like that. Um, so anyways, I got to read in those, and those were just so nice and and well-written, and um, you seem to have a really firm grasp on all these concepts. So I reached out to you, and now we're going to talk about that stuff and other things. But first, um, why don't you go ahead and just give us, like, a, a quick personal background, you know, your running history Ah, uh, you're a PhD candidate. Maybe talk about what you're doing there, and then uh, also about some of the stuff you've written and how you got into all that.
1: Yeah, so I uh, I'm kind of your typical like ran high school cross country, I ran D three in track, I went to school in Minnesota called Carlton College, I majored in chemistry and ran for cross country and track teams there, and then during college I got really into reading about training. I'd go to the library and dig out old like books from 1960 by Arthur Lydiard and uh really really got into reading all about all the details of training and then after college i started a blog called running writings which is i think where you found some of the the material i've written on canova um and that blog i would write about running write about injuries i got kind of into the science of running injuries through that um and uh eventually i mean i wrote a book in 2013 called modern training physiology uh that helped me land a coaching position at a school called Edina in Minnesota, which maybe people familiar with high school running or uh, know that name. I was there for four and a half years as an assistant coach, and we got to go to Nike Cross Nationals all four years. And so I, it was really great to be involved in a, a really high level program like that. And then after that, I applied to uh, PhD programs for biomechanics I got more and more interested in running injuries because it, it seemed like that was the limiting factor for both a lot of the like the private cl- coaching clients I worked with and a lot of the high school kids it just seemed like people really struggled to get injured um, so that's uh, that's where I am now I do a lot of work with the biomechanics of running injuries I do a lot of work with wearable technology. And running biomechanics, so trying to track how people move when they run outside of the lab. Um, but I still, uh, I still try and uh, keep, well, keep one foot in the the running performance side because that is sort of how I got into all this.
0: Since you kind of uh, let in there with your your research on injury, um, maybe we could stick on that for a minute. What is your basic You know what are you focusing on? I guess is what I want to know uh, with your research because I mean injuries is a pretty broad topic, but uh, what Mm -hmm. specifically are you looking at with your research in school? And where and where are you at in your education?
1: So I am in my fourth year right now. I just passed something we call our our qualifying exam, so that's what what delineates you from a PhD student who's doing courses uh, versus a PhD candidate where. technically all i have to do is my dissertation now um although that's just one little thing is kind of a lot but uh yeah you're right running injuries is a big category and so what i'm trying to focus on now is what are the factors that influence the the like the physical stress the the force in specific tissues so like your achilles like your knee like your shin um because it's a very funny thing, we know at the kind of the, the cellular level or the anatomical level, we know that, that those forces, like the force inside your Achilles, is ultimately what um, what gets you hurt. If you think about taking a paper clip and bending it back and forth until it breaks, or taking a rubber band or a hair scrunchie and stretching it over and over until it breaks, like that's the exact same physical process that's happening inside your Achilles or inside your, your shin bone. Uh, that leads to tendonitis. That leads to stress fractures. Um, but uh, figuring out how that process happens inside the body is a lot trickier. So that's broadly, I'm focusing on trying to figure out how is it that the way people move when they run, the speed they run, the the training patterns they adopt, how does that affect how much damage they're incurring at some particular location of injury?
0: Okay, so it's like okay, of course we know, you know, at the cellular level, like you said, what is is literally causing the damage, you know, but it's like it, you're trying to back up a few steps and say, okay, practically what are the, if we back up three or four steps before that at the cellular level, like what led to that and what kind of things can we avoid? And yeah, so, exactly. And, and one of the big mysteries is, is this like you,
1: um, you know, you had Nate Jenkins on here and he was talking about running 140 miles a week. There's, I, I've, I've, worked with runners who they run 80, 90, 100, 120 miles a week, no problem. And then you can turn around and there's somebody else who gets a stress fracture on 20 miles a week. So you have these like almost order of magnitude differences in the training that, you know, you and I look at on their training logs. Uh, but somehow the person running way less still gets hurt. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by that problem in particular. What is it both that gets people hurt, but also what is it that makes certain runners are really
0: robust against injury. Hmm. Yeah. So obviously, I guess it's all relative. Like 20 miles a week for one person may be a huge workload where another person who's adapted over like a decade, 140 miles a week, is relatively not as big of a stress load. So what um, other than just saying, well, you got to take time and adapt and get used to things and take your bumps and bruises. I mean, have you identified any specific, like practical things that anybody at any workload can possibly avoid or do differently than you see a lot of people doing?
1: Yeah, well, the the, the thing you just mentioned is maybe the most obvious and best best uh, supported one from research in terms of don't make really dramatic changes in your training. Um, one you know one of the the big puzzles right now is that there aren't Maybe some of the easy things that we we initially settled on for research, like uh, impact, like how hard you hit the ground when you run, um, just aren't that useful for really differentiating who's going to get hurt and who's not. So, um, that being said, something like cadence—I uh, know people like to obsess about certain magic numbers, like 180 steps per minute—but the 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 science on that essentially is um, if you have an abnormally low cadence, a slightly higher cadence, five or ten percent higher seems likely to reduce your risk of injury. And the the intuition there is that it, it, it appears to be better to take a larger number of steps with less force per step versus a fewer number of steps, meaning at a lower cadence, with larger forces per step.
0: Is the assumption there that f- uh, fewer steps with larger force that you're covering the same amount of ground, like you're pushing, having to push off more and cover more ground with each stride. Yeah, essentially, because that's kind of the, the trade
1: off with increasing your cadence, right? Say you run for 10 minutes at 170 steps per minute versus 175. You're going to take more steps with the higher cadence, but it appears that that trade off appears to be a good one. It's like you, if you can, if you can break that amount of work up into smaller little parcels, that appears to be slightly better from a damage to your body perspective. Hmm. You could think about, there's there's kind of like an argument from extremes here, where if you think about um, uh, people who go walking all the time, right, they, they take many, many, many steps, but it's a very low loading per step. Not many people who go walking for exercise get stress fractures. So that's one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum might be uh, like a long jumper or a triple jumper where they take very few steps, but the loading is enormous for each step and they do get stress fractures. So that's, uh, that's not like hard science, but it's kind of an argument from intuition for where this notion of, um, lower force per step being better comes from.
0: Mm. Okay. So I'm trying to think this through and I'm imagining myself like as I'm running, trying to be conscious of this and maybe speed up my cadence. Um, but is there any risk of trying to take more steps uh, per unit of time or whatever, and actually also increasing the distance? Like uh, maybe your legs end up moving faster, but you know you're still doing the loping. Yeah, and one of the the things that happens, one of the tricky things about
1: about why I can't really wholeheartedly recommend everybody everywhere increase their cadence is. Uh, when a lot of people try to increase their cadence, they end up just running faster. Hmm. And of course that's going to mean you push off the ground harder and put more stress on your body. Exactly. So yeah, that, that is, uh, that's one, uh, one potential thing to be aware of. And then the other one is that, um, if you do increase it from like a performance standpoint, um, people, people's naturally adopted cadence is the most, uh, metabolically efficient one for them. So at least we know in the short term, like if you came into my lab, you're running on the treadmill and I had you increase your cadence by 10%, your oxygen consumption, meaning your, um, your rate of, of energy expenditure would go up a little bit. Um, so that's something you do need to be careful of for, for people who just can't seem to stay healthy. That seems like a decent trade-off because being injured all the time is also bad for performance. But if you're talking about, you know, high level marathoner who is, um, uh, who's thinking about changing the way they run. Well, you know, they've probably settled on a pretty economical way of movement for their body.
0: Right. So it's like, if, if you're not getting injured, if you've been gone five years without an injury is, would you say you probably don't need to change much with the way you're running? I wouldn't change anything at all. Right. (laughs) You know, don't, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. So um with the people who are having problems, you know, um and they're looking for a solution and whatever that problem might be, you know, whether it's in the Achilles and the knee or the hips or something, um how do you practically uh like what are the practical steps you would prescribe for somebody to um kind of put this into action, whether it's increasing cadence or something else?
1: Well, happily, I'm, you know, I'm, my, my PhD is in biomechanics, not in like physical therapy. So I'm not, I don't, I'm not in the business of prescribing anything. Um, so I could maybe phrase it in the terms of how I thought of these things as a coach, uh, and how I do think of these things as a coach. So I'm taking off my scientist hat, putting on my coaching hat, um, the same general principles that you would use with, with anything. Like, introducing it gradually, uh, like testing it out a little bit, seeing how it would go, not doing anything drastic, not doing anything dramatic, not doing anything extreme. Those all like just the same that you would do that with like trying out some new workout, any kind of change in the way you run, you should probably have the same, um, have the same mentality about from the perspective of uh, me, the coach, not me, the sure. Because me, the scientist should say, well, what we really need to do is We need to test this in, like, a randomized experiment. Right,
0: right. Um, Are there any other uh, major indicators that you've come across that seem to be related to injury, like you know i worked in a running shoe store once and and people made a big deal about like pronation supernation using motion control shoes versus neutral shoes and flexibility of shoes i mean there's i mean you know there's there's like an unlimited number of variables here but is there any one that has stuck out to you in your reading or research that uh, besides uh, just like force off the ground um that says ah oh, this this seems to look like something you know yeah. I mean, the, the, maybe the most obvious
1: one is, is the, just how much people run, but that's almost like a, it's almost like a circular reasoning kind of situation. One of the things that's so interesting about the biomechanics of running injury is that it, there aren't really obvious, straightforward, um, risk factor a, and if you have this, you are going to get injured. And if you don't, you're not, it does seem to be more of a, um, interaction between things. So, Um, if you are inexperienced and you, um, run this amount and change your training by such and such, then your risk of injury goes up a little bit. It's not like, Oh, everybody who gets hurt has a pronated foot or everybody who gets hurt has high arches. So this is why, you know, this is what keeps me busy all day is that it's not, it's not super easy. And, and I would maybe my, my, the takeaway from that is, uh, be skeptical of any um, any article you read or, or anything claiming that factor X is the answer for running injuries, because it is it is a lot more more complicated.
0: Right, it's kind of like one of those things where you change one thing, but that change also indirectly makes these other changes. So it's kind of like a you know, a network effect. So, I mean, who, it's probably really hard to trace back cause and effects in these situations. So, um, that does sound very tricky and probably frustrating when people like me are like asking for easy answers. (laughs) Right, right. One of the, one of the strange things that I've learned
1: in graduate school is, is how a lot of the the notions I had going in, um, are not true. So one of the things you hear a lot and one of the things that I think I was a I was a pretty big believer in coming in was this idea that um, your glutes are really important for running and that they propel you forward and that's really what drives your hips off the ground Um, but when you do a muscle by muscle analysis with data from the lab and, and you try and simulate what muscles are actually contributing the most to forward propulsion It's actually not the glutes at all. It's really the calf muscles. And more specifically, it's the soleus muscle, which is the kind of the deeper, um, further down your leg calf muscle that does by far the most work in terms of both supporting your body weight and propelling you forward. So that's very counterintuitive. Hmm. Um, And it's not so it's not obvious to just look at how somebody's running and infer the reasons for, say, like, oh, why does their leg do that when they when it swings through the
0: air? That's interesting you say that. Um, This whole year I've been focusing on uh, this problem I've had where uh, I ran my first half marathon back in February. And through about seven miles, I mean, I felt great. Like I was going, you know, faster than I'd expected. Aerobically, I just felt so strong. Um, The first thing to break down was my lower calves. I started feeling pain about halfway and I really had the feeling that if it weren't for my lower calves just, you know, totally giving out over the course of that second half of the race, I mean, I felt like I could have run at that pace forever. Um, and I was in my racing flats, which I probably maybe I didn't do enough work in my flats. Uh, obviously, my heel was lower, being stretched more and um, less cushioning and that kind of thing. But um, it had it got me thinking, like. You know what's the solution to that? Like I, I felt like my calves were taking such a beating compared to the rest of my body. Like I didn't feel anything, in my quads, glutes, like you're saying. So, I wonder how much of that is uh, they were literally doing more work than I maybe thought, or the shoe thing. Like, well, they weren't really adapted to running that volume in flats.
1: Yeah, certainly. When you wear flats and and like you said, when your heel is lower to the ground, that's going to put more of a stretch on your Achilles, which is good if you're trying to run fast. But it does mean that your calf muscles have to produce whatever forces in your Achilles, your calf muscles have to produce that amount of force to sort of like keep the tension set. Uh, and so that's why you know, a lot of uh, like a lot of college runners have this problem. They run all summer in trainers and they run their first cross country race in, in spikes and it just completely blows out their calves.
0: Yeah. Um, so looking forward for you, what, where do you see yourself taking your research? Do you have, um, like specific next steps in mind after you finish your program? And, uh, you know, what are you hoping to accomplish there? Yeah, I think that the, maybe the most obvious next step would be doing a postdoc
1: somewhere. Um, continuing the same line of, uh, of running injury and wearable technology research. And then hopefully after that, uh, tenure track job at some university. Uh, although, you know, but with COVID and and all of that, like that only adds to the uncertainty of, of academia. Uh, I could also see myself doing some kind of uh, working for one of the, you know, the Garmins or the Apples or the Fitbits of the world. I think there's a lot of really cool stuff going on there as well.
0: Yeah, so before you, um, before we hopped on here a few days ago, you you sent me a short article that you had done on wearable technology. And it was about like what different products are best for measuring what in terms of trying to track um different types of exposure to running and how that could be relating to related to uh diagnosing injury maybe could you maybe talk a little bit about that and what uh what kind of work you're doing that involves wearable technology
1: yeah so the idea with that article was to try and piece apart the range of different wearable devices that are that are out there and how they might be useful for a coach for like a clinician like a doctor physical therapist or for a researcher like me so i do some work with uh, research grade devices that record acceleration 100 300 times a second and uh you could come into my lab i could outfit you with a little like little device you'd clip to your waistband you could go for a run and come back and I could say, wow, Joe, you took uh, 6,926 steps on that run. And you'd say, okay, well, great. But like, what, is, uh, what does that mean for me exactly? Um, so the from the perspective of the researcher, I think those kind of devices are great because I can look at the really fine details of how you moved for every single one of those steps. But for you, the runner, or like a, a, a physician, a, a physical therapist, they might be more interested in, okay, how fast were you running? And, and what's kind of the distribution of paces what was your cadence? Um, what was the vertical oscillation of your pelvis when you were running? These kind of more, um, a little higher level metrics, and then just you know a normal runner might just want to know how far did I run, how long was I running? Is that's those there are maybe lower tech in uh, pieces of information, but for a lot of people, that mileage or distance or, or uh, duration is one of the more helpful and interpretable metrics. But my whole point with that article is to try to uh, make the argument and try to uh, convince other researchers that we shouldn't just look at group a runners who got injured and group b runners who didn't get injured we should think about how many miles starting from when they were healthy how many miles did they accrue before they got hurt so if you think about that paperclip example of like bending the paperclip back and forth you should probably control for like, how many times you bend it, right? <laughs> and that's the that's the same idea. It doesn't make sense to say, like, well, like, I have these you know, five or six high-level marathoners who got hurt in my in my injured group, uh, and, like, I'm going to count them as injured, not taking into account the fact that they were running 80, 90, 100 miles a week. So even if you have two people, one of them whom maybe runs 20 miles a week and gets hurt after a month, the other of whom runs hundred miles a week and gets hurt after 10 months. Somehow it feels like that person who ran more for longer, they, their injury risk should be lower, right? Yes, they got hurt, but like they kind of, in terms of like rolling the dice, they were rolling the dice a lot more. So that was the idea is what what's out there and what can, how do we, how can we use that to think about injury in a new way versus not just injured, uninjured, but risk of injury
0: um, per unit of running. So I guess this geared more towards, like you said, other researchers and coaches, not necessarily to the end users of like the consumers of all these products, but, um, to the people who are trying to look at running scientifically, like, let's get a, let's get a bigger, a uh, clearer, big picture and not just like limit the number of things we're looking at, um, to try to like make more realistic, you know, um, conclusions and things like that, um, Cool. So with technology, um, as a runner, my, my, I'm pretty low tech. I mean, I have a, a a watch that goes up to 30 splits, I think. It's like a basic Timex, you know. Um, I've never used GPS or anything. Um, my thing is, like, what am I going to do with all this data? Like, I, I want to track. I want to measure my running and measure my progress and that kind of thing. But um, at the end of the day, I want to... I want to measure the things that I'm going to go back and actually look at and use like um do you ever do you see that problem kind of on the other end of the spectrum, like having too much data and not knowing what to do with it all?
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely, and so one of the things that you can get with these uh like some of the newer heart rate straps and and stuff is all of these biomechanical metrics, like how, how much your pelvis oscillated vertically in the air. And you can get that for like every second of every run you did. And people will ask me, oh, John, what is, uh, what is, my pelvis oscillation was 9.3 centimeters. Is that good? And me, even the biomechanics researchers, I say, I, I don't know. <laughs> <Maybe."> <laughs> uh, so that's, you're absolutely right. There is definitely information overload. And that's a problem for researchers too, where I can get all that data, but what? Um, how do I? How do I um, distill that into something useful? That's I mean, that's essentially the the project that I'm working on right now is trying to figure out how do you distill all of these potentially uh, difficult to interpret um, metrics into something that's actually useful. If I could tell you. Oh, Joe, that ten mile run you did today—that did um, the same amount of damage to your body as a twelve mile run uh, normally would, because of the because of the terrain you ran on, or because of the speed you ran on. Maybe that would be helpful. Maybe you could use that uh, as a part of your training, uh, you know, counting up your mileage and to to make better decisions about about how you're training. Versus me telling you, oh, okay, you took six thousand nine hundred twenty-six <laughs> steps with an average vertical acceleration
0: of three point seven g. Right. What am I going to do with that? Right, right. It'll be interesting to see where uh, where you end up like a year or two from now, and and what kind of stuff you're working on. Um, because it seems like there's so many places you could take this. Um, running is a pretty big market, you know. So let's switch gears here and um maybe we'll start we'll start like really focused here and then kind of broaden out like um like i said i came on to you with the renato canova article and then so maybe we could uh flesh some of that out and then maybe um wrap up with a little bigger picture of running approaches and different training philosophies and that kind of thing um so Something that re- one of my big takeaways from your um uh, something new in training is that sorry, was that what it's called? Something new, yeah. In, yeah. Yeah, something, yeah. new in, something new in training. Something so, new in training article, and that's uh at runningwritings.com. If anybody wants to go check that out, put all that in the show notes. But uh one of my big takeaways um that stood out to me as a difference between what Canova has these guys doing versus what you read a lot in other places is especially for the marathon he's work doing he's calibrating these workouts around uh paces that are a certain percentage of marathon pace under or over marathon pace as opposed to um like relative paces relative to your anaerobic threshold or vo2 max or something that's physi- physiological re- physiologically relevant to your own body um so <clears throat> that was really interesting and and i heard i saw him um canova where he wrote i think in like a let's run thread or something somewhere that you know training for the like running the right marathon is really a mathematics problem mm-hmm, um, yeah it, it's like let's you know get from point a to point b what pace do you need to run let's work off of that absolute pace like the hard numbers and and i guess maybe the assumption is you know your your threshold your vo2 that's going to take it care of itself as a byproduct of just running the right speed but um that seems like a pretty big um divergence in traditionally what you hear is like well we're going to we're going to run at threshold to get our threshold better and that kind of thing um, so what is your, what do you, what do you think about that approach? Like what's your assessment of this, um, idea of running at percentages of goal or PR pace versus physiological relevant paces?
1: Yeah. So I, I really, um, obviously I wrote an article about him, so I'm, I'm a big fan of that idea at the, the mathematical problem of formulating, okay, I want to run a marathon in two thirty. Well, okay. I need to run this pace per kilometer for that distance. Um, it it's one of those things where once you once you get on board with it, it makes so much more sense. Uh, and Canova's got this idea of um, you have like a it's like a ladder, and maybe the middle rung of the ladder is your race pace, and then as you move away from that in maybe five percent increments, you have these speeds that support your ability to run at race pace, either. Uh, on the faster end, either by making it uh, improving your, kind of your metabolic capabilities and helping you um, sustain faster speeds, so that race pace feels a little easier, or on the slower end, fractionally slower, helping you uh, build the endurance. And so it's kind of like you, you build in this funnel and funnel in towards race-specific speeds, and then when the race is finally there, you're ready to just run you know, 100% of race pace for the total race distance.
0: Yeah and another thing you mentioned in your article was that these when when you start with this mathematical problem you have you have a race pace which would be like 100% you know this is 100% of race pace equals race pace okay so and then if you're going to do say like um faster intervals you know that goes beyond so you're doing like intervals at 105 or 110% of race pace and vice versa with um, under pace. So but what something you said was that this is based on your last marathon or your your personal best as opposed to like a future goal pace. Um, so that was a little counterintuitive for me is thinking, OK, I want to get from point A to point B. I'm doing the math. Why not work off of what I want to run in the future?
1: Yeah, I, I would maybe modify that statement to say it, it should be based on what your current estimate of your fitness is. So, what could you run for a five k or for a marathon, like you know, this weekend? Mm. Uh, and that requires a little bit of humility because you know it's probably not what your all time PR was, and it's probably not what you want to run. But the idea with this philosophy is okay. Let's just let's just look at the facts. You are currently you you have the ability to run. I don't know, five fifty pace for thirty minutes, based on your current level of fitness. And maybe you'd like to be able to run that pace for an hour, but let's be honest, you can't. So let's start with where we're at right now, and then let's gradually work on building your body's ability to extend that speed uh, to to longer durations. So you can't start with something that that uh, you can't do. It's better to start where you are, and then. Uh, through the process of adaptation, get your body to become able to run the same speed longer. That's kind of a core idea with with at least the way I interpret Canova's training.
0: Yeah, and another thing I've wondered, no matter what your approach is, whether you're you know working off a of system like this or something different, everybody is doing a training block with the idea of I'm gonna be better at the end of this training cycle than I was at the beginning. So in theory, every week or every two weeks, that uh, current capability, like you mentioned, should be improving. So, um, you know, it seems like week one, you're, you're training off the assumption that, you know, under like race conditions, I could run X pace for Y distance. And then Week number four, those values should be greater. And then week six, eight, ten, and so on. Um, So a a marathon training cycle can be a pretty long time, anywhere from like 10 to 20 weeks. So it stands to reason that, you know, later in the segment, you should be running these training paces faster and longer than you were before. Um, Do you think uh, as far as doing the math, um, is it just like, well, we'll use the, we'll use the results of the workouts as indicators of fitness and then, and modify future workouts based on that. Cause you're, you don't really get a chance to do an all out race that often, you know what I mean? So how, what do you think is the best way to gauge your current capability as you progress? So, you know, how to recalibrate your workout paces yeah usually, how it works is
1: as you hopefully improve your fitness, you'll notice that maybe your your planned workout was um thirty minutes at um what what did we say earlier five fifty pace. maybe you you do that in your first twenty minutes or at five fifty pace and then you work down to like five forty five five forty two and it just feels super easy, no problem, and you end up averaging oh, five forty seven. then maybe you can update all of your all of your little percentages shift a little bit. And that's that's kind of the art of the coaching is trying to figure out okay how is this going and how is that how is that current um, fitness shifting? Another way you can think about it is that the, um, the 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 paces stay the same, but the duration you sustain them increases as your fitness increases. So let's say you you were um, today you can do um, going with our same example five fifty pace for um, thirty minutes. Maybe over the course of a few months, you can build that up to 70 minutes at the same speed. Now, that's actually becoming a different kind of workout, right? Now, that's becoming more of like a, a long-tempo, aerobic, fully aerobic kind of situation where earlier, the same speed was maybe closer to what what we would think of as, as lactate threshold. So that's kind of the tricky part of it and wh- the, the part that I think people uh, people struggle with. And you can even see like when, when Canova does post on Let's Run, people don't quite grasp this and he's frustrated by it because it's the most obvious thing in the world to him though. Of course, like when you train and if you train well, your fitness will improve. And so the same workout will cease to be, uh, will cease to be appropriate or you'll
0: become able to do something you couldn't do earlier. What about this? Um, you know, we're talking about, uh, Canova making the marathon into a mathematical problem. Like just, let's go off the numbers here. And, and get from point A to point B. But what about the the idea of um, like crossing or not crossing your lactate threshold? Because I mean, you have people like Lydiard who would say, you know, I don't want you to go anaerobic for, you know, your whole pace period and things like that, because of, you know, you're more likely to get injured and that kind of thing. So at what point, like in Canoe from a Canova perspective, when do you think the physiological paces are relevant if ever. so Canova's I
1: think Canova would and I should maybe put a disclaimer here like this is all my interpretation I'm not not the not a spokesman for the man himself but he does write about in, say increasing the lactate threshold but the way he thinks about it is not necessarily that the way you increase your lactate threshold is to run at lactate threshold. Um, for 5k runners, for example, he has a set of three workouts that he says are very effective for increasing the lactate threshold. And and I found that to be the case in, in my own training and in, in coaching. And the workouts are the three workouts are number one, um, six kilometers or so continuous at 95% to 5k pace. So that's basically about 10k pace, maybe slightly on the conservative side. So it's a, it's a straight shot 6k in training at 10k pace. So that's one of the workouts, Another one is long repeats, like 2Ks, uh, maybe 4x2K at just a 2% slower than 5K pace, really close to 5K pace, but just not quite at that speed, a little bit slower. And then the third is uh, sets of uh, 5 or 6 by 500 and you do like three sets of those, and it's really short recovery between the reps. I think it's maybe 45 seconds, and they're 103 to 105% of 5K pace. Uh, so, uh, and then it's a longer rest, like five minutes between, between sets. So he says iterating on those three workouts, maybe doing each of them once every two weeks or so is a really effective way to increase the lactate threshold in a 5k runner. And I've certainly found that to be the case, which is funny because none of those workouts are actually at lactate threshold. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he thinks about it in terms of how can I poke and prod the different systems of the body to get the kind of, um, response in terms of a training adaptation that will raise the lactate threshold so the the um 95 of 5k pace he calls that aerobic power so his idea is that by putting the body into a little bit of a putting it into crisis a little bit will force it to want to adapt and say okay i need to be able to sustain that that 95 of 5k pace better for longer so i'm gonna i'm gonna tune up all these metabolic adaptations and with that comes raising the lactate threshold. So it is, um, it is a, the physiological paces are, um, one factor of the equation, but, but under his training philosophy, the way to increase say lactate threshold isn't necessarily to just run lactate threshold.
0: Right. Um, you know, something else that I see a lot in these, in Canova schedules, and I think generally like any East African, Schedule you come across online has some version of this, and it seems to be something you don't see as much in in Western programs or American programs. Not as much, I'd say. It's it's just not emphasized as much. Um, Is these short farligs, like one minute on, one minute off, um, or like one minute on, thirty seconds off, or you know, like these quick back and forths uh, that seem to be done more by feel than um, like exact pace and this seems to diverge from what we've been talking about like these very specific targeted paces that are percentages of race pace um it seems like a little less scientific of a type of workout um and the other thing for marathoners it seems like a lot of these are done where the 1 minute on will be say like at marathon pace and the 1 minute off would be like you know just quote moderate or easy pace even And so two things, I see this workout a lot, it seems almost like a staple um, in these programs. Number two, it seems less scientific than all the other types of work you see them doing. And number three, it seems easier, like uh, one minute on one minute off, you know, where you're at marathon pace, and then moderate or easy for the off seems a lot easier than like some of the other things that'll show up like, five times 5k at like 105% of marathon pace with a 1k recovery at like 85% of marathon pace or something. So what it's, it's a little mysterious to me. Like, what do you think is the deal with these fartlek workouts?
1: So I see those fitting into one of the more general principles of Canova's training, which is that you don't have, it's almost the antithesis of the classic American hard easy philosophy where your hard day is hard and your easy day is easy. One of the things you see with Canova's schedules is something, and he has a term for this, he calls it modulation, meaning more variability day-to-day, both in terms of volume and in terms of intensity. So instead of thinking about I have workouts and I have recovery days, there is a whole spectrum of ranging from super easy regeneration runs to maybe just moderate effort runs, to some of these uh, the East African style fartlek workouts, one minute, one minute, or you could do things like uh, thirty seconds fast, starting every three minutes during the middle of a run, one minute strong, starting every four minutes. Uh, and you're right; these aren't these aren't real workouts, and uh, they're not. Uh, what, what's amazing about them, in terms of what I found with with myself and with with runners I've worked with, is you can do those like the day before a real workout and uh, you'll actually feel better. And so it seems to seems to just kind of shake up the monotony of training, get your legs moving at a different speed, help you feel a little snappier, a little peppier. Uh, And it's uh, it fits into that general idea of more day to day variability, more
0: modulation in your training. Okay, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. I was looking at it more of like you said, it's in the workout bucket. So, and compared to the other workouts, it's, it doesn't seem to fit. So it doesn't, didn't really make sense, but that, uh, and another thing you s- see along those lines is like, you know, one day will be like, you know, like, like you said, easy regeneration day where you, jog 40 minutes in the morning and like 60 minutes in the evening or something like that. And then the next day it'll be say like 90 minutes moderate. And then you'll have like one of these fart licks, and then you'll have like a, one of these super power workouts type. So there is a ton of variability. Um, and you're right. That is a huge difference. I see when um, like the, the, the binary, like easy hard day uh, mindset, that um you see in other programs where it's like well on these on these workouts we're really going to hit it hard and going to hit these paces and then it's just recover until the next one and that's it um yeah
1: i think one of the one of the interesting patterns you can see is that after those really big workouts you can see a strategy of trying to kind of build back up towards higher intensity in just in the course of those three or four days following the workout so like you said, maybe the day right after that really long, fast run, just do some easy regeneration running. Then the next day you do a moderate run, then the next day you do some moderate running with these fart and then you're ready to work out again versus hard and then easy, 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 really hard, easy,
0: easy, easy. Right. That makes, that makes so much sense. It seems, it, it seems like more of a flow of training versus like this jerking back and forth between like shock your body one day and then go super light until you're ready to shock it again kind of thing. It almost sounds healthier somehow. Uh, so another key component of these schedules that I see is the later in the cycle, like when you're getting closer to your goal race, you'll get these, uh, what Nate Jenkins called these alternation style workouts where you're running long intervals. And then the recovery between intervals is faster than a jog. Like, it, like I was saying before the example of say like, you know, like eight times two K or, or, um, it's usually pretty long, like up to like 30 K work works worth of intervals or something like, you know, maybe say five times five K, at like 105 percent of marathon pace and um, like a 1K recovery at 85 percent of marathon pace. So not um, it's it's not what you typically see with like repeats and um, other kind of more conventional programs where you're just worried about the pace on the repetition and then just recover, jog between it, just feel better. Um, so. And I was talking to Nate Jenkins about this a lot. He said it's so fundamental um, and it does so much for your fitness. So something I'm wondering is, I'm wondering why you almost don't see it uh, come up more often in Canova schedules. Maybe it's something that takes a long time to recover from. I don't know. But something you mentioned in your article is that typically you're building up to this during like the fundamental phase and you really don't do these until you've kind of built the tools you need to be able to do that so that makes sense like okay that's a hard workout so you better have done some good training so you can even handle that to begin with but um I've and I've done these um from time to time myself and I have noticed like wow I've I I really notice a difference after that um so something I've wondered is like why not even why not incorporate these like from the very beginning even like a smaller scale you know So in, in Canova's framework, that kind of a workout is a classic
1: example of a specific workout. That's the most, it's the most relevant thing for your race performance. So a a simple example might be maybe 14 kilometers alternating one K at a few percent faster than marathon pace, one kilometer at 90% of marathon pace. And you can do a few things with that. You can, number one, you can move to doing more, um, like extending the marathon pace segment. So maybe you do that 14 by one K one K the next time you do that workout 10, 10 days two two weeks later, you can do the same total volume, but now do two K one K a few weeks later, you do three K one K a few weeks later, four K one K. And then you can think about the marathon being like the ultimate culmination of that, where you just take away that, that, that one K recovery. And it's like the training wheels come off and away you go. <laughs> And so in Canova's philosophy, those are the most important workouts, Th- those workouts. And then the long, fast runs at fractionally slower, the marathon pace, those are your specific workouts. And then everything else you do in training exists to support your ability to do those. And so I think in, in this mindset, the reason you wouldn't do that kind of workout four months out from a marathon is because you're just not ready for it. And you don't, you haven't built up your body to the the point where it's ready to do and to benefit and recover from that he has this great saying that when but when you when you think you're ready to run the marathon you're actually ready to train for the marathon (laughs) so it's like once you've done your like 20 mile long run and you know your 10 mile tempos and your your like 10k repeats now okay now it's you think you're ready to race but no you're
0: ready to train that's pretty good i like that um so, you just mentioned the other, what seems to be the other, like, key, like, cornerstone of, of these programs, which is the long, the fast long run, so to speak. Um, and this really stood out to me as something you really don't see Americans doing. And, all right, I have to stop and say, we're making these comparisons between, like, you know, Canova and America, like, very, I don't know if this is an overgeneralization. I was going to ask you about this, but, um, I I mean I don't know I mean I've probably seen like less than one percent of what most top Amer- American marathoners are doing so I, I'm it's not like I really know what everybody's doing but when you it, I'm just talking very generally when you do get a chance to see somebody's training on like Strava or like in a book or on Let's Run or something I'm I'm kind of extrapolating here so that's just a little disclaimer I don't mean to knock uh, Western or American athletes because uh, for one thing, I'm not doing what they're doing, so you know. Um, but we're just talking theoretically here. Um, so anyways, having that said, one big difference I see um, is these long, fast runs, and it, it this really just clicked with me because um, training for the marathon um, in non Canova programs, the the thinking seems to be it, it, there's almost like this when you get to like the 18 to 22 mile mark Um, like you know you got the glycogen depletion problem and and people just don't want to touch it like well you know maybe once every like 10 weeks we'll do like a 25 mile run easy or something like that but the closer you get to marathon distance there seems to be this really like um, timid kind of uh, approach to it where I I don't know. And then, so you see Canova schedules where they'll do like 28 miles or something like that at, you know, like 80% of marathon pace. And it, it's, to me, it sounded like the way you would train for any other shorter distance. Okay. Like we're going to do, we're going to do intervals at faster than race pace. Um, and then we're going to do over distance run at a little slower than race pace. It's just like very intuitive. Um, so, so yeah, you, you don't see this like, okay, we're going to do a 20 mile run and we'll do like six of it in the middle at marathon pace. It's more like, no, we're going to do like a 20 mile run a little slower than marathon pace for the whole time. And it seems so much more specific to the actual race. Um So to me, it made a lot of sense, but I also understand like the, the risk involved in that. I mean, and, and the fact that you got to build up to be able to do that. Um, yeah, I think this is this this is like that 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 once you see
1: once you see it, like everything makes sense. We can the, the amazing thing about that idea of long, fast runs for the marathon is we're totally on board with that idea for the 5K or for the 10K. Right. We're totally on board with, oh, yeah, let's you know, let's do a let's do a, a 20 minute lactate threshold run to train for the 5k well that's a that's a long fast run at 92 percent of your race pace uh and likewise you say you do i don't know eight mile tempo run training for the the 10k well that's probably like you know 95 92 90 percent ish of your race pace uh and then canova's idea is oh well gosh it works well for these shorter distances do it for the longer distance too and that, so the long fast run seems to work really well with those, uh, those alternating workouts. And I, I do agree. We should maybe note we're recording this like a few days after the, the, uh, the marathon project where a bunch of top Americans have, have set all time PRs. And I think, um, when we're saying American training, we're not, we're probably not referring to what they're doing because whatever they're doing, it's clearly working. But you're right. This is the kind of stuff you see for, you know, people on the internet or people on Strava or or running to win or whatever. Um, Maybe during marathon training, they do 20, maybe 22 miles, but just easy. You don't see a lot of these long, fast runs. And I think one of the reasons is they are tough and you got to, uh, you got to be really prepared for them.
0: Yeah. Um, Let's go there with the like uh, comparing Americans to East Africans. I mean, and like I said, uh, (laughs) I'm not an elite runner. Like I have 100% respect for, like you said, the marathon project. I think there was like 10 guys under 210. I mean, uh, American American marathoning is in a really exciting place right now. I mean, I'm proud of these guys and like, I want to support all these guys. Um, and I, like I said, I'm not doing what they're doing. I don't, I don't mean this to come across as like criticism. I'm just theoretically just here, like just as a curious observer, um, you, you know, (laughs) So you have these East Africans running anywhere from, like, 201 to 206, like, all day. There seems to be no no uh, limit to the supply of these guys being churned out. Um, and, okay, you, you know, what people say is, well, you know, they grew up running. They, they grew up at altitude. Um, and, you know, like, you can't... You can't. It's apples and oranges because they're just a different. uh, They're just a different breed, you know. You can't compare these guys to Americans, um, which is probably true. Um, On the other hand, um, we can't ignore the training because they're not competing against Americans. They're competing against each other. So you got to think they're doing what's going to optimize their potential, regardless of what anybody else in the world is doing. So I think looking at their training. Is, you can't just ignore what they're doing um and just say well it's genetics so is it is it do you think it is it, from what you've seen an overgeneralization to say you know their training is fundamentally different than what most westerners do or or is it the training is you know these guys compared to what top americans are doing yeah it's a little bit different but really Um, they were already going to be better no matter what. What do you think about that whole,
1: so, so Canova actually has a really good point on this and he says, okay, fine. Like, forget about the Africans. Let's just look at what were top Americans running in the seventies. And you had guy, random guys like Dick Beardsley running two Oh nine. And now this is more true, maybe like five, 10 years ago than it is now. Um, but, uh, his argument is look like even compared to your own standards, a lot of Amer- a lot of Americans or Westerners who maybe have success in the 5K and the 10K um, don't translate that to the marathon. Maybe the way that they they ought to, and the only explanation for that is is training. Now, my I don't work with top level professional runners. My perspective has been more from from what the what kind of your like typical like D two D three long distance runner who's good at the 5K and the 10K when they move up. Um, but with them, I, I think the training is a big factor. And once you see them start incorporating some of these East African style elements into their training, they get much better. And their marathon performance is, is substantially improved.
0: Yeah. Um, and the other thing is if you take one of – I mean, it's probably a different situation in the U.S. Um, with the other factors involved. Like you take all these training groups, like these post-collegiate Olympic development groups. Um I mean, it's it's easy to sit here and say, look, on paper, it's, you know, just do what these guys are doing and you'll be better. I mean, that it's easy to um, just look at it on paper in that way. But I can imagine in reality, you know, like especially the coaches of these groups. I mean, these guys are like, for one, they're trying to coach a whole bunch of people they're trying to like run a business for their group, negotiate contracts with their own athletes and with sponsors and that kind of thing, um, keep the thing financially viable. I mean, that's got to be a super stressful job to head up one of these groups. Um, and then I, I can't imagine it being easy to say, you know what, the training we've been doing for the past 10, 15 years it's worked. We've seen improvement, but I'm just going to throw it all out. And we're going to start with something experiment right. with you guys. Right.
1: Like, like, yeah, yeah. It's it's easier to do that at the level of individual athletes than it is to, to, to completely change how a whole training group, uh, is, is working. And the, you know, when, when I try and push back on, on, um, maybe what we we are calling mainstream American training, it's, Really, what I think about is like what you see in the Internet, what you see kind of like discussed at your local running uh, group on Sunday mornings. Um, That's I think that's where the um, that's where these ideas about how we train for marathon are kind of like most strongly ingrained because there's always people doing, you know doing completely alternative, unusual stuff. Like, you know, you had Nate Jenkins on. He was, he was running super high mileage back when that was not cool at all, right? Back when the story was, oh, you're going to get hurt. You're going to burn yourself out. Like, that's all, oh, that's, you know, got to keep your mileage under control. So there's always, and I'm sure there's there's runners, there's groups, there's coaches who
0: are, um, who are, you know, who, who we're not talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so something else I wanted to get your take on is, fueling during a marathon. It's not something you hear a ton about, especially when you're reading Canova. Um, you know, there's a lot of opinions on, you know, number of calories per hour and that kind of thing. I mean, what is, do you have any general, um, you know, guidelines or anything you've seen very compelling when it comes to fueling during a marathon?
1: Yeah. So I approach this from maybe more the perspective of what's pragmatic and practical because for, um, I was listening to your episode with Matt McDonald and he was talking, it was really cool to listen to what, what their fueling strategies are. Um, and for a lot of runners though, they, most people don't get water bottle service at the race. Most people, um, don't have a, a team to, to like bike support for them during their, their workouts. So, a lot of how I think about fueling has to do with how do I take what I know is maybe textbook optimal and uh, make it feasible for, you know, random runner doing their long, fast run by themselves on a bike path. Um, so I, I also try not to overcomplicate things. So so kind of has got this great saying that the the secret is to make easy what was difficult, not make difficult what really is easy. <laughs> And I think when you get really obsessed about, okay, like how many calories per hour and what's the ratio of fructose to sucrose. And I think that's falling into that category of making things difficult that are really easy. So my basic guidelines are take a gel every 25, 30 minutes during your long, fast marathon workouts. And during the race, that's 80, 90% of what you need to worry about. Mm. There's some difficulties with kind of timing it, especially in the race, because Um, you, you know, you want to take that gel right before you hit a water station so you can wash it down with, uh, with water so you don't have that like peanut butter mouth feeling. (laughs) Um, but yeah, generally I, I recommend gels to most people exclusively from pragmatic reasons because you can just carry those around with you versus a, like a water bottle, which you don't want to be, be lugging with you on a, on a long run. And, and, you know, you can run into issues with like, if you, you leave your water bottle on the side of the trail, like. Somebody, somebody kicks it into the dirt. Somebody dumps it out, you know, like it's, gets lost. <laughs> you're thrown in the trash. Is it,
0: yeah. The that's the practical side of things. Yeah, no, that seems like a very sound approach. Like, and like you said, get, get to that like 80% solution and just roll with it. Kind of like, um, that seems like a very, uh, common pitfall. And I know something I've got sucked into for is like trying to find a hundred percent solution. Like, I want to solve this problem 100%, which is probably, one, impossible. And number two, probably not even possible to know whether or not you got the optimal solution. Like, just get, you know, solve the chunk of the problem and kind of keep moving and don't get hung up on it. That's that sounds like pretty good advice. Um,
1: yeah, one of the one of the other things with that is also if you if you have your 100% optimal solution and you're dead set on it, if anything goes awry, mm. y- you panic, right? So right. one of the one of the things I always tell runners like right before their marathon is expect something is going to go like completely go haywire. You don't want to be in that spot. Like there's something you know, there's maybe a, I don't know, a 20 per 10% chance that like you'll go to take your gel and you'll, you'll just drop it. Right. And it's like, well, guess I don't get a gel at this (laughs) mile. Right. So
0: you kind of got to be ready to roll with the punches. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about Canova specifically. Um, maybe we can wrap up here. And, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, because you've looked into not just Canova, but all sorts of different programs and approaches to training, um, is, the fact that you, like you said, wrote an whole article about Canova kind of, you know, speaks to this a little bit, but, um, is it fair to say that like his approach is what you found most compelling or when you look across the world, um, and across the U S are there any other, um, unique approaches that you've seen that are also equally compelling?
1: I think, yeah, big influences for me, definitely, um, definitely Canova, um, it's, it's, Um, certainly Arthur Lydiard, like kind of a grandfather of, of the way we think about training is a big one. Um, Percy Sarity, he was actually pre Lydiard, but he, uh, he has a few old books that are really fun to read and, and just get in the mind of, of somebody who was a really, like really decades ahead of his time in terms of how he thought about training. Uh, and then the other, the other person who I don't think maybe gets enough, uh, enough credit and who was a big influence on me was John Kellogg. So I have another big project on my website of trying to collect all of his writings. Um, He is somebody who thinks very deeply about the problem of how do you increase your high end aerobic fitness, which is essentially what supports your ability to do all of this like fun Canova stuff that we talk about long, fast runs and, you know, long repeats at high fractions of your race pace. How do you, how do you go from like, you know, a 15 year old five minute miler to a really strong, really fit uh uh collegiate or or post-collegiate runner, that like long-term aerobic development. His ideas were, were super influential for me.
0: Have you gotten to the bottom of the identity of John Kellogg? Is that even a real person or <laughs> did you figured that out? Uh, well, he's a, certainly a mysterious character. Um, I
1: this this project I have on my website is a collection of all of his writings that I could find from Let's Run, and unlike Canova, who um, posts under his real name, John Kellogg has all of these various different um, different esoteric little usernames but the the writing style is unmistakable it's very very obvious uh that it's him i think he has like a phd in astrophysics i mean he's like a, unbelievably brilliant and he has these long like, extraordinarily insightful and illuminating posts that are just un- impossible to miss and he only has he has maybe like 8 or 10 of these like usernames that he switches around from but i i mean i've never i've never um i i've never met the guy i've never talk to him he is one of these sort of like mysterious internet gurus um but it's a strange thing man his he's he's really spot on and my my transformation from uh you know kid who couldn't break five minutes in the mile to to somebody who was able to have a reasonably successful college career i think was in large part due to due to him so are you still running any now yeah, I mean, because of COVID, I, I found a lot of my motivation for uh for racing has has evaporated, and of course with my PhD now, that's got to be my my top focus. But uh, I ran the uh, the Indie Mini Half Marathon last uh, last spring, um, and that was super fun. I still I'm loosely affiliated with the running club here at uh,
0: at IU, so uh, I dabble. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I've totally hung them up. Yeah, um. So I saw in one of your articles or some, or maybe it was a thread on let's run or somewhere. You mentioned that you ran grandma's marathon when you were like 16 or 17, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, have you ever, was that the only
1: time you run it? I ran grandma's when I was 16 and when I was 17 and I actually haven't run a marathon since then. So yeah, that's my officially, my officially marathon PRs from, you know, before I had a driver's license. Yeah.
0: I was going to ask because um, I signed up for Grandma's. They're planning on actually having it in person this year in June. Um, So that's going to be my first – well, technically I ran a trail marathon like five years ago. Didn't really train for it. I don't really count that, but uh, this is going to be my first like real shot at the marathon that I'm I'm really targeting for it. So I was going to ask you, I don't know, like any – any takeaways about the course or any like, uh, event specific advice you have for it? Yeah. So Grammys is a
1: great race. Uh, I've, I've, uh, coached some runners who, who run there quite often. And so I'm having, despite having not run the course in 15 years, I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, it's a really fantastic course. The uh, once in a while it gets a little hot, but like maybe three out of four years, it's, it's the weather is, is really nice. Um, yeah, it's a good course. Uh, uh, you'll have to email me right before your race. I'll send you my, my super secret uh, course preview. One of the things that I like to do for for runners before a marathon is I do a, I do like a mile-by-mile analysis of the race to see uh, how much slower or faster each mile is going to be based on the elevation and, and that kind of thing. Oh. It's grabbing the features of the race. One of the fun things about grandmas is if the – so it's point-to-point, but if it's a nice, clear day, at the nine mile mark you can look across the lake and see the finish line because this finish line is at this big lift bridge Hmm. and so you can can say okay i'll i'll be there and you know
0: 17 miles (laughs) (laughs) very cool okay yeah i will i'll keep in touch and we'll uh Maybe we can do um some kind of debrief with you or something like that, but uh yeah, we'll do a little little course analysis
1: uh and share some of my some of my secrets for uh figuring out like how much faster or slower this is gonna be
0: yeah, awesome um I was very i mean I'm very impressed with what I've read so far about uh, their plans i mean they've they've seemed very determined from the beginning of all this um, that they're going to have the race. They're going to have a plan. They've limited the capacity to like 4,000 or something like that. But, um, so I'm excited that that's relatively considering the way this year has gone. I mean, that's relatively pretty soon. Um, June. Yeah. It's nice to have have something to look forward to for sure. Yeah. So anyways, well, John, thanks so much for coming on here and sharing all this with us. Um, so unless you have anything else just burning in your mind that you want to talk about, I've gone through my list. So um, unless you have anything else, we can wrap up.
1: Yeah, I think that's I, we we really hit on all my all my big points that I like to remind people: run long and fast, long intervals, race trip. Think about the specificity of your events. What like why why am I doing this workout? How does it help me with what I want to achieve? It's, been able to hit on all those. So I'm a happy man.
0: All right. Well, me too. Thanks so much. And we will go ahead and stop it there. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. This is great.